the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is engineering and producing. Clark Hilton, well, he's engineering as well. And we're glad to be broadcasting from our remote locations. Well, we're trying to respect our neighbors and make sure that we're all safe, safely separated from one another. Well, today on the program, we're looking forward to a conversation with Meg Meek. Dr. Meek is a specialist. She is a, a pediatrician and a parenting expert. We're going to talk about strategies to cope with stress during this pandemic. So she'll be joining us uh in our next segment, in fact, we're also going to share a classic interview with Sid and Jeff Holesclaw. The uh, book that they authored is Does God Really Like Me? And I'm looking forward to uh, sharing that conversation with you today as well. A lot of information. In fact, it's a challenge every day to figure out what to include, what to leave out, because there's so much news and it develops so quickly through the course of the day. But we'll start with some of the day's headlines. Well, there was grim news earlier the day in the day of uh, the coronavirus infections and fatalities continued in the United States with the number of confirmed cases rising above 200,000 and the number of deaths surpassing 5,000. Now, you might recall yesterday that number was 4,000. So in the space of a single day, we lost 1,000 Americans. With the climbing numbers, five more states, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, added or expanded their stay-at-home orders, while Michigan proposed a 70-day extension of an emergency declaration that had been set to expire on the 7th of this month. Now is the crunch time for us to lessen the peak, to make the bullseye smaller so we don't overrun our health care system. That was a quote from Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp. According to Fox 5 in Atlanta, he added that the next three weeks were critical for Georgia and that residents needed to hunker down. The White House warned on Tuesday that even with social distancing measures, 100 to 240,000 Americans could die from the virus. So if you think it's unimportant that you take precautions in your little part of the world, think again. Well, jobless claims are expected to rise above 3 million for the second straight week. The number of Americans filing claims for unemployment benefits is expected to shoot to a record high for a second week in a row as more states enforce stay-at-home measures to curb the coronavirus pandemic, which economists say has pushed the, the economy into recession. Thursday's weekly jobless claims report from the Labor Department is expected to show that claims uh, blow past last week's 3.3 million. It will likely reinforce economists' view that the longest employment boom in the U.S. history probably ended in March. And the president says he can't confirm China's coronavirus case numbers in a statement of the obvious, given what we've seen over this uh, last short period. President Trump said Wednesday he couldn't confirm or verify the numbers of coronavirus cases and deaths being reported by China. And he warned Americans to brace for more horrific days in dealing with the virus. And while the president said the numbers being reported by Beijing seem to be little on the light side, the president and national security advisor Robert O'Brien said they currently have no ways to confirm the number of COVID-19 cases being reported by Chinese government officials. The comments followed accusations from critics 
that China is underreporting its cases. So about those declining numbers, Chinese uh, counties are going into lockdown amid the fear of a second wave. And those who attempt to speak out, they just simply disappear. In typical communistic fashion, Chinese doctors who have disappeared after blowing the whistle on the threat. Well, the Coast Guard is telling cruise ships that uh, cases uh, with cases of COVID-19 to stay away from U.S. ports. Dr. Anthony Fauci has given security detail after receiving threats. And environmentally woke San Francisco, ironically, joins Massachusetts in banning reusable bags for grocery stores. For the record, Tom Cotton, the senator who saw the coronavirus coming, uh, speaks out on National Review. It's worth a good read. California engineers um, ran a train off the end of the rail track in an attempt to attack the USNS Mercy in Los Angeles. Hmm. Uh, the president, in preemptive uh, maneuver, says that Iran is planning a sneak attack on U.S. troop assets in Iraq. And there is a growing threat that malign actors will try to exploit the situation. The president launched a massive military offensive on drug cartels as well. Representative Adam Schiff is drafting legislation to set up a 9-11 style commission so Democrats can exploit the coronavirus response and uh, have veto power over decisions being made by the president. Representative Matt Gates is proposing common sense bill blocking funds from Congress to China owned businesses. An American civilian arsenal is growing by more than 2.5 million firearms after record-shattering gun sales in March. Massachusetts governor is infringing on the Second Amendment rights of uh, individuals there by closing gun stores, and Florida is issuing a statewide stay-at-home order. It just happened yesterday. Pennsylvania has placed uh, under stay-at-home orders as well. Again, a bit late to the game. On this day in history in 2014, a spree shooting at the Fort Hood Army base in Texas left four dead, including the gunman and 16 others injured. On this day in history, 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon, I used to say that in school, first sights land in what is now the state of Florida. And in 1792, the Coinage Act is passed, establishing the United States Mint. 1902, Electric Theater, the first full-time movie theater in the United States, opens in Los Angeles, 1902. And on this day in history in 1917, President Woodrow Wilson asks Congress for a declaration of war on Germany. 1956, the year I was born, as the world turns and the edge of night premiere on CBS and become the first daytime TV dramas to debut in the 30-minute format, later to be known as soap operas. 2006, on this day in history, more than 60 tornadoes break out in the United States. Tennessee is the hardest hit, with 29 people killed. A Dr. Burke says that actions of China may have led to the slow coronavirus response. And she explains, when you talk about, um, could we have known something different? You know, I think all of us. I mean, I was overseas when this happened in Africa, and I think when you look at the Chinese data originally and you said, oh, well, there's 80 million people, I'm quoting, by the way, or 20 million people in Wuhan and 80 million people in Hubei, and they come up uh, with the number of 50,000, you start thinking of this more like SARS than you do this kind of global pandemic. Later, she says, I think the medical community interpreted the Chinese data as this was serious, but smaller than anyone expected, because I think probably we were missing a significant amount of data. Business Insider reports that China has concealed the cases and deaths it suffered from the disease. The U.S. intelligence community concluded in a classified report to the White House, according to three U.S. officials. 
The officials asked not to be identified because they said it's, uh, the report is secret and they declined to detail its contents. But the thrust, they said, is that China's public reporting on cases and deaths is intentionally incomplete. Two of the officials said the report concludes that Chinese numbers are fake. And Irel uh, Davidson, again commenting, says, always refreshing when mainstream media breathlessly reports what we all have known for weeks. National Review has put together a timeline of China's deception and includes this. What you have probably not heard of, um, heard is how uh, emphatically, loudly and repeatedly the Chinese government insisted human transmission was impossible, long after doctors in Wuhan had concluded human transmission was ongoing. And how the World Health Organization assented to that conclusion, despite the suspicions of other outside health experts. Beckett Adams says Democrats and members of the U.S. news media should be reconsidering their remarks defending and praising China amid the COVID-19 pandemic, especially now that those remarks are being highlighted by China's aggressive and sophisticated propaganda machine. Meanwhile, Oregon teachers, uh, the teachers union, are blocking kids from transferring to charter schools. So they're stuck home with no online education. From the story, some 300 students uh, successfully transferred in mid-March to Oregon's Connections Academy alone, and the teachers' union were alarmed by this mass exodus from the public schools. Under pressure from the unions, the Oregon Department of Education stopped allowing transfers on the 27th of May. At Oregon Connections Academy, this means some 1,600 students who had sought to transfer won't be able to. Jeff Nope, the uh, school's uh, founder and president of the Board of Directors, says. Betsy DeVos says, surely this must be an April Fool's joke or just fake news, right? No one would deny kids access to education right now because the unions asked them to, right? Well, sadly, wrong. Well, the leftists are upset that a Christian charity is now being allowed to help save lives from the New York uh, magazine. The group behind the 68-bed center is Samaritan's Purse, run by evangelical uh, uh, Trump friend Franklin Graham. According to NBC New York, the uh, group asked health care workers and volunteers to adhere to a statement of faith which opposes same-sex marriage. Uh, local officials, including the city council speaker, Corey Johnson, are raising concerns about the group. Johnson called it extremely troubling that he and his organization are involved in our relief effort in any way to save lives of people in his community. Priorities, folks, priorities. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll talk with Meg Meeker. She is an MD. She's also a um, uh, pediatrician, and uh, she is... A parenting expert. <laughs> Let's get that right. She'll be joining us to talk about strategies to cope with stress during this pandemic. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, all of us are trying to cope with the new normal, which we hope isn't normal for very long, but we're being patient with what we're being required to do. The COVID-19 pandemic is unprecedented, certainly in our days. In a matter of two weeks, life for American families has drastically changed. Parents are working from home. Schools are closed. And many employees of non-essential businesses are without work altogether. Well, as the virus continues to wreak havoc on our economy and consequently family life, millions of Americans are left well, anxious, asking, well, now what? Well, while the situation is changing on a daily basis, nationally renowned pediatrician and parenting expert, Dr. Meg Meeker, is encouraging parents to practice three essential strategies to help minimize anxiety 
and to keep quarantined families calm and communicating with one another. Well, Dr. Meg has, uh, is a much sought after expert and she joins us today to help us, uh, well, navigate this new normal, uh, wherever we happen to be sheltering in place. Dr. Meg, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. What are some of the common threads that we are experiencing as we're sheltering in place, practicing social distancing, and trying to navigate this new normal that you find that we share in common? I think there's a lot of anxiety um, and uncertainty. You know, we don't know what's around the next corner. Uh, We hear that kids so far aren't getting sick, but we wonder, will they in the future? Particularly hard for parents. I think there's a lot of anxiety over job loss. You know, we Mm -hmm. see that a lot of our friends are losing their jobs, and we wonder, gee whiz, am I going to be next? The other difficult thing is families all of a sudden spending a lot of time together in enclosed quarters that they've never done before. And I know that domestic violence has gone up um, in some areas, and uh, kids are having a hard time, you know, coping with not being with their friends, not being able to go to sports practice, and so forth. So... A lot of stress, a lot of stressors on many different levels for um, kids and for parents. Now, you offer some strategies that can help minimize the anxiety that naturally accompanies an uh, an event like this, an unprecedented event. Tell us what uh, these strategies are and how that might help us to cope. I think one of the most important things is to, uh, when you're talking to kids, is to dissipate some of their fear, to quell their fear. A lot of us are afraid, and if we don't get our anxiety under control, it doesn't really matter what we say to our kids because they're going to Mm. be so anxious. So really to sort of, you know, deal with that and talk to our kids and say, the truth of the matter is 95-plus percent of us are are going to get through this okay. So it's really important to first and foremost, um, you know, handle some of your fear. I think it's also important for parents and for kids as quickly as they can to get on a schedule. You know, we all need a rhythm to our day. We had that before this all happened. And it isn't summertime. It isn't a free-for-all. We need to really um, sit down and sort of, you know, organize our day and say in the morning and the early afternoon, I'll do this, and then the afternoon later on, I'll do this, and Keep to as much of a schedule as we can. That's a, those are good places to start. Oh, that is such good advice because I think be, because we're so unfamiliar with this territory that we tend to not think about how can we restore order, which gives a sense of peace and calm under any circumstance, but certainly under this circumstance as well. You know, I had been doing a lot of reading uh, recently before all of this happened about loneliness and that that was a we were nearly uh, epidemic proportions of loneliness. We have ways of connecting today that, for example, in 1918, they didn't during the Spanish flu. Is that helping us to navigate this uh, this territory because we cannot be physically present with one another? Is connecting in other ways a good substitute? And are people uh, managing that in healthy ways or how can they manage it in healthy ways? Well, I think it's absolutely um, necessary during these times of loneliness. It's funny, a month ago we were screaming about our kids being on screens too much and now yeah. we need the screen. Um, but it really is important, and I think it's important for families in particular and um, women or men who are in a, and kids who, who have close friends to actually put on your calendar when you're going to talk to your family, when you're going to talk to your friends, 
Because if you aren't intentional about making sure you connect with those people, sometimes you don't. But it really is important. And to tell you the truth, it's kind of fun because now I've got some kids scattered around the country, but we can all come together on a Zoom call and talk to each other in a way we really could never do before because we would visit one person and another. It doesn't replace physical touch, and it doesn't replace the intimacy that you experience with somebody when you're face-to-face. But, boy, it sure helps relieve some of that loneliness that we all feel that can really take us down. You know, loneliness is a precursor to a lot of anxiety and depression, particularly in kids. So that is one area where we can shore things up and help some of that, um, you know, the angst that you get mm-hmm. from loneliness start from uh, setting in. I know for a lot of families, they may um, have come to grips with the fact that we're not likely to be uh, impacted directly by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, we're, we're practicing social distancing and hygiene and all of that. But grandma, we can't connect with grandma. She might be in a facility and we can't visit her. Um, and there may be some anxiety about what's going to happen to grandma. We hear of who's the most vulnerable. There are people in the family, for example, um, who have underlying conditions. What advice do you give to, to uh, parents who are trying to allay their children's fears, uh, not so much for themselves, but for other family members uh, that they can't connect with and are in vulnerable populations? You know, it's very difficult because I have had a couple of situations where a grandparent, for instance, is dying in a, in a nursing home and family members and grandkids can't go in and say goodbye. Mm-hmm. One of the things I encourage parents and kids to do is write handwritten letters. You know, that that art is almost gone. But I think it's important because you can write a handwritten letter um, and and send it in and maybe send a photo and the staff can handle it in a, in a careful way where they can, uh, where, where a loved one in a shut-in situation can receive some love and some TLC from you. So I think, uh, I think those can be very helpful things to both the person who can't get in the nursing home and as well to the, the person who's in the nursing home. You know, it's so interesting to me when you consider the greatest generation that's lived through world wars, who lived through the Depression. Um, for them, I think they might find it uh, less challenging to adjust than their great-grandchildren. We've never been in a situation where we've been challenged in this way. Uh, it might be a, a, a good practice for us to really consider what they have lived through, and that might help us bolster uh, ourselves up just a bit. Any other advice to help families navigate this new normal? Well, I think it's important to find a way to diffuse your stress. You know, we're all stressed. And rather than allow it to, you know, just grow and grow and grow, it's important for parents to sort of say, okay, what works best for me to relieve my stress? For some people, it's exercise. Other people, it's listening to music. Other people, it's doing artwork, whatever. And have in place um, a mechanism to get your stress out. Otherwise, it, it just bottles up in everybody and people just start fighting. Same is true with your kids. You know, say, you know, what is going to help my kid not bottle up their stress? They have to get outside. They have to move. Um, they have to get fresh air. And I know some places that isn't possible, but in most places it is. So I think that's one of the most important things that parents can do to help us get through this very difficult time. 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Dr. Meg, I thank you so much for talking with us and just helping us think through some of the challenges we face and offer some advice to alleviate that stress and um, the anxiety that comes along with this kind of uh, new situation. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Again, uh, Dr. Meg Meeker, she is a much sought after um, pediatrician and parenting expert with great advice on how to cope with the stress that comes along with this pandemic. I know we like to pretend that, well, we're not stressed out by it, but it, it takes a toll. Uh, when so many changes are being made in such a short period of time, when we're witnessing the challenges our neighbors are facing and we're concerned about family members. So great advice to help us get through all of that. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break in just a few moments, and we'll continue to provide well, news and information related to COVID-19 and the new normal. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this um, Thursday afternoon. You know, it's harder to keep track of where we are during the week. We're doing a show every day, but things are just not quite normal. Well, grim news of coronavirus infections and fatalities continue in the U.S. on Wednesday with the number of confirmed cases rising above 200,000 and the number of deaths surpassing 5,000. The fatalities for Wednesday alone topped 1,000. A one-day toll more than double that usually is recorded for lung cancer and influenza combined, according to USA Today. Some researchers predicted U.S. coronavirus deaths could surpass 2,000 per day by mid-April, exceeding daily deaths attributed to heart disease, according to the report. Five more states, as mentioned earlier, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, uh, added or expanded their stay-at-home orders, while Michigan proposed a 70-day extension of an emergency declaration there that would have expired on the 7th of April. It's being taken seriously. But on a high note, um, uh, it's a very happy 104th birthday for a World War II veteran here in Oregon, William Lapscheese. On Wednesday, the Lebanon, Oregon resident celebrated with family members after surviving a recent bout with coronavirus. He was 103, now today 104. Uh, He is fully recovered. He is very perky. He is very excited, according to his daughter. Photos were posted online showing him at his outdoor birthday bash at the Edward C. Allsworth Veterans Home in Lebanon, celebrating with balloons and a large happy birthday sign while seated in his wheelchair and wearing a mask. Of course, his family could not come to be with him. The party attendees practiced social distancing, except for when some nursing home staffer who also wore masks provided some aid uh, to him. The festive occasion was a little more subdued than the 2016 event when about 250 people gathered to help him mark his 100th birthday. So we have a a 103-year-old, now 104-year-old survivor, an Oregon veteran, celebrating his birthday today after having survived the coronavirus. Well, as hospital staffs across the country battle the coronavirus outbreak, many are turning to their faith to carry them through long and very difficult days. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis declared a stay-at-home order on Wednesday as the state has at least 101 dead due to the virus there. Of the Sunshine State's 7,700 Um, confirmed COVID-19 cases, at least 82 patients are being treated at Jackson Health uh, System. Uh, This is how we started our morning today, says one Danny Rodriguez, a senior ER tech at Jackson South Medical Center, in a statement. Our team said a prayer asking God for guidance, for protection while we are at work and to keep us and our families safe. Another powerful image was shared from a group of Nashville nurses on the roof of Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And there was a group of um, nurses 
uh, on top of a hospital here in the Portland metro area, said one, it felt so good to do this with some of the amazing co-workers here. A labor and delivery nurse wrote on Facebook, we could feel God's presence in the wind. Know that you are all covered in prayer. Americans have supported hospital staff by cheering at an appointed time every day across cities and businesses. In many areas, individuals have stepped up to donate meals to hospital workers as the president extended the CDC guidelines to stop the spread of the virus. So men and women who are on the front lines are also recognizing and acknowledging their need uh, for God in prayer. Well, unemployment claims have exploded. New records have been set during this uh, outbreak. Uh, 6.6 million Americans are filing for aid this last week. Well, as the U.S. braced for the worst of the coronavirus outbreak, they tell us it will be in the next two weeks. The number of Americans who are filing claims for unemployment benefits has surged to more than 6 million last week. That's breaking a record high for the second week in a row. Claims uh, between the period of uh, the 21st of March and the 28th blew past the previous week's record of 3.3 million, according to the weekly jobs uh, Uh, Claims report from the Labor Department published on Thursday. However, U.S. equity markets shrugged off the uh, record unemployment numbers, surged to a session high on Thursday morning after the president said he expects and hopes Russia and Saudi Arabia will sharply cut oil production. Investors were also assessing the grim news that the number of confirmed cases in the United States was about uh, was above rather 200,000 and the number of deaths, as mentioned earlier, uh, topping 5,000. Uh, The aggressive spread of the novel coronavirus across the globe has the World Health Organization officials on edge. During a virtual press conference on Wednesday, the director general said he is deeply concerned about the rapid escalation and global spread of the virus. Meanwhile, China is pushing back on claims it purposely falsified its numbers. Well, since coronavirus started ravaging New uh, New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo has appealed for federal support and criticized the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic. But his critics say he needs to look in the uh, in the mirror and examine years of fiscal mismanagement and cost cutting. He and the president have declared something of a truce in recent days, and that's the way it should be. Well, president Trump on Thursday said that he would prefer sending ventilators directly to hospitals while blaming states for not stocking up on medical supplies now. Uh, needed to treat coronavirus patients. And the Justice Department and Department of Health and Human Services are distributing nearly 200,000 N95 respirator masks and other medical supplies to New York and New Jersey after confiscating them from individuals hoarding the materials. Michigan Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer's administration, in a reversal from the state's directive to medical professionals last week, has requested an emergency supply of drugs the president touted as having success in treating some patients with severe symptoms of the novel coronavirus. It's not a cure, but it does relieve some symptoms. And as hospital staffs across the country battle the coronavirus outbreak, many are turning to their faith to carry them through long and difficult days. And movie theaters across the United States and Canada were forced to close their doors last month because of the coronavirus pandemic, and it's left a $600 million deficit in the box office, according to a new report. Well, the president, flanked by the Attorney General Bill Barr, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, and top military officials at the White House, coronavirus briefing announced yesterday massive new counter-narcotics operation in the eastern Pacific Ocean and Caribbean Sea to combat the flow of illicit drugs into the United States. 
We must not let the drug cartels exploit the pandemic to threaten American lives, he said. In cooperation with the 22 partner nations, U.S. Southern Command will increase surveillance disruption and seizures of drug shipments and provide additional support for eradication efforts, which are going on right now at a record pace. Well, included in the force package are Navy destroyers, other combat ships, Air Force surveillance planes and helicopters, and 10 Coast Guard cutter ships, the president said, noting that the new forces would double U.S. interdiction capacity in the region and help slow, uh, spread the slow, this, how <laughs> I can say this, help slow the spread of the coronavirus by reducing illicit travel. This going on right now. Well, the recent coronavirus uh, relief package will provide some $400 million to states for the 2020 elections. And lest you have forgotten, yeah, this is an election year, a presidential election year, no doubt. And it is um, on schedule to move forward, although some details surrounding that election are changing. If this pile of money isn't spent wisely, um, Hans von Spakovsky points out, the integrity of the elections will be at risk. So while some states are rushing to mail-only balloting, Uh, If they are not prepared and do this correctly, this could be um, a very dangerous season. Residents of some states may not be able to vote in person, may be forced to vote using absentee or mail-in ballots as long as the current emergency continues, with social distancing being the norm at schools and businesses, offices and government facilities closed. But no one should forget that absentee ballot voting is vulnerable to intimidation, to fraud and chaos, as all mail elections move forward, move behind closed doors beyond the oversight of election officials. And we've been doing it for some time here in Oregon, but there are concerns across the nation, not to mention prolonged counting and potentially lengthy delays in certifying questionable results. Well, election officials should start taking steps now and ensure that if a mail ballot system is ordered, the election itself can be protected from the dangers that will otherwise result. Georgia, for example, and again, quoting Hans von Spakovsky, who's been a guest on this program many times, uh, Georgia has declared that its June 2020 primary will be conducted by mail. Election officials have taken steps to avoid some of these concerns. Only registered active voters will be sent the absentee ballot request forms. This will cut down on fraudulent voting as unauthorized persons won't be able to send an unsolicited ballots that show up in states that simply mail Um, absentee ballots to all registered voters without receiving requests. So some concern about the impact all of this may have on the upcoming election. Now, we're going to take a break here in a moment. But when we come back, we'll talk about the Democratic National Convention that has now been officially postponed to August due to the coronavirus and concerns surrounding it. So what does that mean? Does the Democrat Party have its nominee? We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to share a classic interview with Sid and Jeff Holzclaw. Does God really like me? That's coming up when we return and in the next hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, we have a classic interview coming up at 5 with Sid and Jeff Holzclaw. Their book, Does God Really Like Me? Again, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, the Democratic National Convention is going to be postponed until August due to the coronavirus uh, in a historic and pretty stunning change to the presidential election calendar. But, of course, historic and stunning change is something we're growing more accustomed to. Well, the convention committee said the event will be held the week of August 17th in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was originally slated for July 13th through the 16th at the same location. 
In their recent climate, they, uh, they write, of uncertainty, we believe the smartest approach is to take additional time to monitor how the situation unfolds so we can best position our party for a safe and successful convention. During this critical time, when the scope and scale of the pandemic and its impact remain unknown, we will continue to monitor the situation and follow the advice of healthcare professionals and emergency responders. Uh, again, the CEO of the Democratic National Convention Committee said in a statement. Now, interestingly enough, the two front runners are both in the category of most vulnerable, and one would hope that each of them can stay healthy enough to attend the, the convention should it actually take place. Uh, and then the question is, uh, even though we will be, be over the most challenging part of the COVID-19 pandemic, is it advisable for groups that large to be uh, together in such close proximity? And those are questions, of course, we don't know the answers to until the time comes. Well, says, uh, uh, again, Joe Salmanese, I have always believed that American innovation and ingenuity shine brightest during our darkest days. And for that reason, I'm confident our uh, convention planning team and our partners will find a way to deliver a convention in Milwaukee this summer that places our Democratic nominee on the path to victory in November. Well, the announcement comes just days or rather hours after former Vice President Joe Biden, the likely nominee, although not confirmed, said he expected that delay. I doubt whether the Democratic convention is going to be held at the um, in mid-July, early July. I think it's going to have to move to August, which, of course, it now has. Biden pointed out that even then the Republican and Democratic convention were going to have to, we just have to be prepared for the alternative and the alternative End quote. Well, the former vice president hinted that how long the worst effects of the pandemic last would determine the convention planning. And of course, uh, that is the case for both parties. The coronavirus outbreak has spread globally. It's formed, uh, forced most Americans to huddle in their homes in hopes of preventing the spread of the virus. Those venturing outside are urged to practice social distancing. And the vice pre former vice president said in an interview on MSNBC on Tuesday night, that it's hard to envision thousands of Democratic convention delegates, officials, media, and other spectators packed inside an arena, even this summer. But Biden added that we ought to be able to do what we are able to do in the middle of the Civil War all the way through the World War II, have Democratic and Republican conventions and primaries and elections, and still have public safety. And we're able to do both, but the fact is that it may not uh, it may have to be different, end quote. Well, the Democratic Convention will now be held the week before the Republican National Convention, which is scheduled for August the 24th through the 27th in Charlotte, North Carolina. Moving the Democratic Convention to August, which was under consideration for weeks by top uh, party officials, became easier to do after the International Olympic Committee last week proposed the 2020 Summer Games in Tokyo. Uh, they originally were scheduled for July the 24th through August the 9th. They have now been postponed for a full year. Well, some things remain the same under every circumstance, and politics is uh, at the top of that list. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced today that she's creating a new House committee to oversee the coronavirus response that will have a subpoena power to seek information from the Trump administration, attempting to insert herself in this national tragedy. It would have subpoena power, that's for sure. It's, uh, it's no use having a committee unless you have subpoena power, she said, during a teleconference call with reporters. And we would hope that there would be a cooperation because this is not a kind of an investigation of the administration. It's about the whole response, end quote. Representative James Clyburn, 
uh, will chair that House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Crisis. The committee will be bipartisan, she said, with Democrats and GOP members appointed. Unlike the 9-11 style after action committee to investigate missteps in the coronavirus response that Representative Adam Schiff and others have proposed, Pelosi said this committee is designed to address the here and now, specifically concerning the allocation of the historic amount of federal funds directed to economic recovery, which, of course, the House passed. Pelosi compared the new committee to the Senate bipartisan committee chaired by Senator Harry Truman in 41 to investigate waste, fraud and abuse in defense spending in the early days of World War II. And there's nothing that uh, the House knows better than waste, fraud and abuse. So they might do a good job in this case. Huh. A new study as Americans debate the deadlines of uh, or rather the deadliness of the coronavirus and how we have to respond. A new study in Daily Tracker launched today by coronavirus is expected to uh, or I should say shows that coronavirus is expected to become the number one leading cause of death in America this month. It's also projected to be either the seventh or 16th deadliest event in in American history, including pandemics, wars, influenza, and other leading causes of death. AssistedLivingFacilities.org today launched a daily tracker on coronavirus versus other causes of death using White House projections from the 31st of last month and data from the CDC. The numbers in the study will be updated daily for reference in the reporting and for American uh, uh, Americans who are monitoring all of this. Well, on April 1st, COVID-19 was the third leading cause of death, 954, heart disease, uh, 1,700, and cancer, 1,600, were one and two, respectively. It is projected to become number one during the peak days of April in the next two weeks. Since March 1st, COVID-19 is the ninth leading cause of death in America, 4,700, behind heart disease, cancer, accidents, bronchitis, stroke, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and influenza. So you can see how those numbers have climbed. Well, in U.S. history, they actually made a a listing to give you some perspective. The number one deadliest events in U.S. history was the Civil War. 750,000. HIV AIDS is number two at 700,000. That was in 1981 to the present. H1N1 or the Spanish flu, 675,000 in 1918. Heart disease over the years and in particular 2017, 647,000. Cancer, 99,000 in 2017. A World War II, 405,000 from 1941 to 1945. And at number seven, the COVID-19. These are based on estimates uh, offered by the White House earlier this week. The numbers could reach 240,000, which would make it the seventh deadliest event in U.S. history. Uh, Behind that, accidents, bronchitis, emphysema, asthma, strokes, yellow fever from the 1600s, Alzheimer's, World War I, uh, H2N2, um, which was in 1957 and 58, H3N2, avian flu, which was in 1968. And uh, if the lower projections that the administration announced um, come to fruition, then COVID-19 would be the 16th deadliest event in U.S. history if that lower White House estimate uh, from earlier, uh, from late last month, I should say, uh, holds true at 100,000. So it's interesting to put it into perspective of other events that have had major impact on the country. And then the, uh, I think it was KGW, featured a very interesting article, if you can go online and see that, in which they went back to newspapers 
during the, uh, the 1918 flu pandemic and how it hit Oregon. The city of Portland shut schools down. Many businesses during the outbreak were closed, similar to the present-day stay-at-home order for COVID-19. So this is not the first time here in our uh, communities. Schools closed, businesses shut down, gatherings were banned, more and more victims uh, were counted uh, every day. Uh, if it sounds like Portland dealing with COVID-19, well, it was the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Newspaper clippings from more than a century ago reveal what life was like for Oregonians during that pandemic. And again, you can find that online. The morning edition of The Oregonian on October 12, 1918, included the headline, All Portland Bows to the Will of the Nation. This was the day after Portland Mayor George Baker ordered the city schools, theaters, dance halls, and churches closed. And yes, churches were closed then as now. Um, the University of Oregon's historic uh, Oregon newspaper actually presented some of the clips, which you can find at the KGW News website. As referenced by the headline, uh, his order came after a lot of other cities had already put quarantines in place. He didn't really want to shut Portland down, uh, says a uh, historian who recently wrote about the Spanish flu in Portland for Willamette Week. He was told to by the U.S. Surgeon General and public health officials. Like some of Oregon's present-day leaders, Baker was worried about what would happen to businesses, the impact it would have on um, on the economy. A second headline on the uh, Beaverton Times clip reads City officials named uh, as uh, at Outdoor Caucus, in which they were uh, again, not just Portland, but in the Beaverton area, calling on people to, um, to shelter in place, if you will. Even Spanish influenza cannot stop local politics, but interest lags as week goes, one of the headlines read. The 1918 midterm elections were held just a week. Um, a few weeks after the article was printed, Woodrow Wilson was the middle, uh, in the middle of his second term. Republicans took control of Congress. Life went on. And again, you can find this at KGW.com. Century-old newspapers show 1918 flu pandemic hit Oregon hard. And it's rather interesting to see these articles and to read uh, what was going on at that time. So I guess there really is nothing new under the sun. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll be back. In fact, we need to have news and traffic. And then we'll be back with our classic interview, Sid Holesclaw and Jeff Holesclaw. Does God really like me? You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guests have authored the book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. And it's a question that some have asked and wrestled with. It's one thing to say that God so loved the world, but does he like me? Well, my guests say um, that we all know what it's like to feel overlooked, to be disconnected and feel ashamed. We might believe in God's love in the abstract, but we often live our lives without experiencing it in any deep or lasting way. Well, Pastor Sid and Jeff Holesclaw, they understand this, and indeed, they felt it themselves. In their engaging book, they explain from the story of Scripture that God not only likes us, but wants to be with us. He also wants to work through us to bless the whole world. The book is filled with personal stories and simple, clear teaching from the Scriptures. Does God Really Like Me applies the good news of the gospel to the shame and disconnection that we all experience in our everyday lives. Well, Sid Holsclaw is co-pastor of Youth and Families at Vineyard North in Grand Rapids, Michigan, as well as a ministry and life coach and spiritual director. Jeff Holsclaw uh, has a Ph.D. from Marquette University, is also co-pastor of Youth and Families at Vineyard, as well as uh, affiliate professor of theology at Northern Seminary in Lyle, 
Illinois. He's the co-author of Prodigal Christianity. But today they join us as a couple to talk about the latest book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. Sid and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, it's great to be with you. You write in the introduction, we felt disconnected and judged, overwhelmed by friends and underwhelmed by our relatives. We know how it feels when someone doesn't want us around, and we know how it feels when someone is sucking up all our energy. We have been yelled at, we've been yelled, uh, we have yelled back, we've been ignored, we've done the ignoring, we felt people were just putting up with us, and uh, we're just putting up with others too. Whether we know it or not, all these experiences color our experience of God. If you've been ignored, scolded, or shamed, then you've probably wondered, consciously or unconsciously, if God is ignoring, scolding, or shaming me. One more painful, um, uh, painfully, maybe uh, you think God is just putting up with me. Let's begin with the title of the book, Does God Really Like Me? Why is it an important question when we know in Scripture that uh, God so loved the world, which is a very large number, that he gave his only begotten son? Yeah, well... We found in our ministries and our lives together that um, that when you tell people that God loves them, that because of those past hurts, those wounds from like childhood or just growing up, that a lot of times telling people that God loves them just kind of bounces off of them. And so we, we've been trying, how do we find language that really connects, especially with younger people, but really just everybody, that helps kind of sneak past some of those defenses and kind of help the gospel seeds really kind of enter into their life. And so we came up with this idea of does God really like me? And especially we, the subtitle of discovering the God who wants to be with us, that idea that God wants to be with his people. And that really connects with people uh, rather than just saying abstractly that God loves you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. God wants to be with you. What difference is that likely to make in the life of a believer who's a little insecure about God's love for them, uh, certainly, but whether or not he does long to be with me in particular, that he really likes me in particular, what difference might it make if there was a, a biblical understanding that God does, in fact, care that much about us? Yeah, that's a great question. Just to sit, I don't, we, we didn't jump on at the beginning, but I just want to come here, too. It makes a really big difference because I think we all have those feelings of deep loneliness at times when even when we're with another person, if we feel disconnected from that person, um, it can be incredibly lonely and painful. And understanding that God not only just loves me from afar or loves me in sort of a loves all of his people collectively kind of way, but actually individually longs to be with me and delights in me can really change the way that we feel about our relationships as well. Because rather than needing to have approval and connection from another human being all the time, we can remember even in our loneliest moments that we're actually never alone because God actually wants to be with us and is happy and glad to be with us at any point in time, even when we're in those lonely, isolated spaces. Is our insecurity uh, to some degree the result of misunderstanding the depth and breadth of what Jesus has done for us? Um, Or is it that... um, we just have a hard time imagining that I'm not the exception, that everyone else maybe has sinned, but no one is quite as, as bad off as, or unlovely as I am. Mm, yeah, that's a great insight. Yeah. yeah, I think it's actually both. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes our understanding of who God is uh, and what God is up to in this thing that we call salvation or the gospel can sometimes be um, not as uh, full, fully understood as, as we want. And then other times, just real personal life issues kind of keep us from receiving that love of God. And so 
when we you ask, well, doesn't the Bible, John three sixteen, say for God to love the world? And that's absolutely true. But we go throughout the whole story of the Bible, and we're trying to really make that love of God concrete in in people's lives. And so we talk about how you know, right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, um, Joseph is you know, told, or rather Mary is told you know that uh, Jesus is going to be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus promises, "I will be with you to the end of the age." And so there's all these promises that God is going to be with us, even in the midst of the difficult times, even in the midst of the confusing times. And so that's the truth we need to hold on to. But then through the stories in the book, we really talk about our own lives of shame, of disappointment, of comparing ourselves to other people. Right? We do mm-hmm. all these mental and emotional gymnastics to try to find approval of God and with other people. Uh, and so we really kind of tell our own stories about how this love of God really connects with us, too. And so we really do it from both ends, the truth of the gospel, but then also um, our own experiences. Yeah, and I think, um, oh, sorry. No, please go ahead. Yeah, one of the one of the chapters, the title is, Is God Disgusted With Me? Mm-hmm. I think that's that the question that you were asking about, you know, do we believe that we're the exception and God couldn't possibly overlook all the things that I have done? Um, and I think that that chapter really gets at the heart of that, of the, that we get, we get disgusted with ourselves. Um, I think we are so filled with remorse and shame over our own sin that it's, it's so difficult for us to imagine that even in that place that God would still draw near to us and seek us out and pursue us. Yeah. He has made provision for just how unworthy we are. And we, it's hard for us to really appreciate all that he's done in order to give us that access. Absolutely. Yeah. I I love that you write that uh, you've written the book for two reasons. One, to communicate to your reader that you belong in God's presence, that God is with us. And secondly, that you have a place within God's purpose, um, God through us. And and sometimes we may accept that, okay, through Christ, uh, God is with us under every circumstance, but I still am not sufficient to be, uh, to find purpose in, in God's plan. We somehow, again, Imagine that we might just make it in by the skin of our teeth, if you will, but to be a part of God's, there's a place for me within God's purpose, that might be a challenge to embrace. Yeah, absolutely. We So when you think of uh, somebody liking you, the first step is, well, yeah, they want you in your presence, right? So when you go over, when little kids go play with each other, you know, it's kind of like you can tell when one kid doesn't want another kid around, right? But but then you know that uh, someone really wants you to be in their presence when they start letting you play with their stuff. You know, like we all went over to our grandparents' house or someone's house, and they're like, oh, you can't go in that room. or Don't touch that thing. You know, it's like the really fancy houses. But God's not like that. Like, he actually says, hey, you can be with me. We, all, we, we talk about through the book about how God has invited us into his family and into his house, you know, to live in his home with us, uh, with him. But then he also gives us a gives us a share in his business is what we kind of talk about the family business of salvation of doing the things of God, a flourishing life. And so that's another mark that God wants to be with us is because he actually shares his mission with his, with his people. And and that's, that's both a responsibility, but it's also a huge blessing. Right. And also it's a blessing that transcends whatever current um, occupation we're called to. So even if you're, you know, um, serving in a drive through window, you can still have a part in God's family business as you're seeking to flourish life and to be a blessing to all the people that come through that drive through um, I talk in the book a couple different times about how hard it was for me when I first uh, was staying at home with my kids and feeling like I had sort of been removed from any sort of uh, visibly recognizable work in the world and how connecting with my place as 
being part of the most significant purpose there ever was, which is to be a blessing to the entire world, that God calls us to be a blessing to the world. And so being able to participate in that, even as a stay-at-home mom, gave me great purpose, even when I didn't feel like I was being recognized for anything that I was doing. Yeah, that's good. We're talking this afternoon about the book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. And that's not just me and Sid Holesclaw and Jeff Holesclaw. We're talking about you. If you are a follower of a Christ, this applies to you. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Sid and Jeff Holesclaw. They are the authors of Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us, uh, taking us all the way through the scriptures to help us better understand God's plan and purpose for us as his children and his followers, and even the role we play in the family business, as they put it, which I, I like so much. The book is divided into four parts, and each part is structured in a way that we can really take to heart what the scriptures teach us, and we begin to recognize the uh, the heart of God toward us, regardless of our station in life. Uh, one of the things that you do at the, at the um, at each of the, the last chapters in those sections is uh, to define failure of humanity uh, to live in God's presence and uh, for God's purposes. Kind of describe how you structure each part of the book to help us not only learn what the Scripture teaches, but really to take to heart what God is saying about being uh, in His presence, His desire to be with us, um, and the purpose that, that He has for us as part of His family. Yeah, well, one of the things that's clear to us all the way through Scripture is that God is always the one who's making the first move. Mm-hmm. He's always the one who's taking the initiative and offering His presence to us. And so in each of the first chapters of each of the four parts, we talk about how God is offering His presence to His people. And so part one is basically in the garden at creation, and then part two is the nation of Israel, part three is the person of Jesus Christ, and part four is the movement of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And so in each of those parts, uh, the first chapter in that section is about God's initiative, how he's offering his presence. And then the second part of that is always about how uh, we belong in his presence and how we are um, received into the family. And then the next chapter is always how we're caught up in his purpose and how he's offering for us to participate in the family business. And then the fourth part in each section is our failure as humans, how we miss the mark, how we um, fall, we stray off the path of life, we choose the path of death instead, and then what God does about that or how he continues to move toward us picks up again in the next section of Mm -hmm. each one. Except, of course, in the very last chapter of the book, which has, you know, more of a future-looking invitation into dreaming and imagining what it will look like to live with God forever. So in the first part of the book, we're talking about how God set up creation, but then um, we end that section by talking about the fall, how, how Adam and Eve kind of gave in to sin, and how shame came into the world, and how, that's why we're all hiding. That's why we have this question, does God really like me? Because we're hiding because of shame. Mm-hmm. We look at the fall there. And in the second part, we're talking about how God called Abraham and raised up Israel to be the people of his purposes in the world. But then we end that part, too, with kind of the failure of Israel, which is the exile, where they, you know, they're kicked out of the land, um, and God kind of has to restart his purposes 
Uh, and then we go in and start talking about uh, Jesus in the third part. And of course, that part ends with with the cross, where Jesus has kind of taken up all of those failures of Adam and Eve and the failures of Israel, but really the sin of the whole world. And he enters into death to take care of the sin and death for us so that we can overcome shame. And then the last part of the book then is, well, how, how do we gather around that cross that saves us and gives us a new identity as children of God and a new purpose as part of the family of God? And so it's really, uh, it's going through the whole Bible and kind of sharing the whole story of God's presence and I've worked with us, but it's also doing it, we think, hopefully, in a very practical way. So people yes. can like, really kind of stay close to the text. And it moved, it, it's a pretty readable book. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. We tried to make it readable. <laughs> now, one of the things that really surprised me when I first opened the book, and I'm looking through the table of contents and each of the parts of the book, the first one is titled God's Idols. And you, um, you parse the word image, that we are created in God's image and why that's uh, that's important. Can you explain that? Because it threw me off initially, and I had to, as every reader should do, I had to read, okay, what are we what are we talking about here? Because, you know, we are told that idols are something we should shun in every circumstance because we are placing in things uh, created by man's hands the attributes of God, and these are created things. So explain the, that part of the, the title and how that relates to the early part of uh, of what we learn in Scripture. Sure. Yeah, it is. Uh, we kind of use that language on purpose because it's surprising, but it, it, it worked. Really is, yeah, but, but that really is the, the purpose of the word, the way that it's used. It's, it's really, um, you know, the reason that there's such a strong prohibition against idols is because God has already created idols of His presence and of His um, king, of His rule and reign, and those idols are humanity. And so we kind of unpack the word idol and what idols meant in the ancient world um, in two different directions. One is that whenever the ancient peoples would build a temple to a god, it was said that the god didn't actually dwell in that temple until the idol had been installed in the temple. And once the idol had been installed in the temple, then it was as if the presence of the god was in that temple. And then the second way of understanding that is that uh, ancient rulers would erect statues of themselves at the edges of their boundaries so that anytime someone would cross over into that king's territory, they would see these idols standing around the edges of the territory and immediately know who was king in this place. And so when God created humanity, he was using imagery that the, I mean, what we see in scripture is using the imagery that the ancient Israelites would have understood which is that God created humanity as his idols, which are the absolute representation of his presence. The the God dwells in the house of creation because the idols that he created in his image are now installed in that garden. And then he also shows clearly where his rule and reign extends in that wherever humanity goes, God's rule and reign goes with them. And so they they mark the lordship and the rule and reign of, of the king who is God. As a lot of times people, you know, we've all probably said things like, well, if we're followers of Jesus, then we're the hands and feet of God. Um, but if we think about that, what does that actually mean? Well, it means, you know, if we're the hands and feet of God, then we're, we're kind of, we are the body of God. And we're, we're said in the New Testament that we're the body of Christ as Christ followers. The church is the body of Christ. And, these types of things. and so we were trying to use that idol mm-hmm. to, get, to really get at that too many, too much of the time, I think, when we say that the image of God, we think of, um, you know, like our smartphones and our televisions and our computer screens, like displaying an image of some information that's far away. 
But the biblical use in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 of this image of God is, is much more um, intimate. It's much more tangible. It's like, no, we're physically, in some sense, we, we are where God is you know, supposed to be ruling and reigning, where, where his presence is supposed to be you know, kind of um, gifted to the rest of the world. And so humanity, the reason why Israel was told not to have idols in one sense was certainly because God is invisible and you can't make a re- representation of who God is. But the other reason is kind of, well, because God actually made his own idols. Like he made the images that he wanted in the world, and those images are humanity. Uh, and so we're not supposed to make any, any other ones because he already took care of it. Our time is so short, and there's so much packed into this book that we won't have an opportunity to talk about. But let's talk about the Old Covenant uh, and the law revealed to us that sin existed, and it was very clear that we could not live up to, or not we, but they could not live up to the standards of the law. Under the New Covenant, we uh, have been ex- we have seen the grace of God extended over us, and we have access to God because of what He has done. If we want to recognize that God does, in fact, want to um, uh, to be with us. I mean, believing is the, certainly the first step to do that, but that he really likes us and for, and for that reason wants to, uh, to be with us. Give us some practical steps to begin that process while we're waiting to get the book that we're going to order, <laughs> Does God Really Like Me, uh, to really study this out. Yeah, well, some practical steps for that are, um, I have found it really helpful to do what I call a manual journaling, which is, we, we talk about it quite a bit in the book, mm-hmm. we do, um, We do practical exercises at the end of each chapter to sort of build the progression. Um, But I think first and foremost, I would encourage people to actually go and look at the the book of Exodus and read about Hagar. Um, Genesis, Genesis, sorry. (laughs) Genesis, and and find the story of, of Hagar, and then also go to Exodus and find the story of God visiting Moses in the burning bush. And um, those are just two places to start. We're seeing this very personal God that comes down and visits his people, and especially Hagar. Hagar has always been especially significant to me um, because she is not part of the promised line, and God really doesn't have any particular reason to treat her in any sort of special way because she's not part of his promised line. And yet when she is... um, when she runs away from Abram and is out in the wilderness, God actually goes out of his way, pursues her, and speaks to her and makes promises to her. And He says, she names him the God who sees me. And so I think even just beginning to understand and try to think about what would it be like for God to see me right now, to actually be able to see me. And if he sees all of me and he still wants to be with me, that could be an invitation to how can I begin to receive his presence with me on a daily basis and just trying to imagine that God can actually see me where I am. And I know for some people that will stir up a lot of shame because they'll be thinking, I don't want God to see me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I mean, we do address that in the book too, of ways to be able to meet God even in our darkest places and have him come alongside and, and say to us, you are my beloved child. We talk about the baptism of Jesus and how when we are in Christ, that delight that the Father has for Jesus That's at right. his baptism is the same delight that we are brought into yes. when we are baptized in his name. Oh, so good. Once again, the book is titled, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. The book is published by InterVarsity Press, currently available. Sid and Jeff Holsklaw, thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Bye-bye. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, all of us are trying to cope with the new normal, which we hope isn't normal for very long, but we're being patient with what we're being required to do. The COVID-19 pandemic is unprecedented, certainly in our days. In a matter of two weeks, life for American families has drastically changed. Parents are working from home. Schools are closed. And many employees of non-essential businesses are without work altogether. Well, as the virus continues to wreak havoc on our economy and consequently family life, millions of Americans are left well, anxious, asking, well, now what? Well, while the situation is changing on a daily basis, nationally renowned pediatrician and parenting expert, Dr. Meg Meeker, is encouraging parents to practice three essential strategies to help minimize anxiety and to keep quarantine families calm and communicating with one another. Well, Dr. Meg has, uh, is a much sought after expert and she joins us today to help us, uh, well, navigate this new normal. Uh, wherever we happen to be sheltering in place. Dr. Meg, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. What are some of the common threads that we are experiencing as we're sheltering in place, practicing social distancing, and trying to navigate this new normal that you find that we share in common? I think there's a lot of anxiety um, and uncertainty. You know, we don't know what's around the next corner. Uh, we hear that kids so far aren't getting sick, but we wonder, will they in the future? Particularly hard for parents. I think there's a lot of anxiety over job loss. You know, mm-hmm. we see that a lot of our friends are losing their jobs, and we wonder, gee whiz, am I going to be next? The other difficult thing is families all of a sudden spending a lot of time together in enclosed quarters that they've never done before. And I know that domestic violence has gone up, um, in some areas, and uh, kids are having a hard time, you know, coping with not being with their friends, not being able to go to sports practice, and so forth. So, a lot of stress, a lot of stressors on many different levels for um, kids and for parents. Now, you offer some strategies that can help minimize the anxiety that naturally accompanies an uh, an event like this, an unprecedented event. Tell us what uh, these strategies are and how that might help us to cope. I think one of the most important things is to, uh, when you're talking to kids, is to dissipate some of their fear, to quell their fear. A lot of us are afraid, and if we don't get our anxiety under control, it doesn't really matter what we say to our kids because they're going to mm. be so get anxious. So really to sort of, you know, deal with that and talk to our kids and say, the truth of the matter is 95-plus percent of us are, are going to get through this okay. So it's really important to first and foremost um, – you know, handle some of your fear. I think it's also important for parents and for kids as quickly as they can to get on a schedule. You know, we all need a rhythm to our day. We had that before this all happened. And it isn't summertime. It isn't a free-for-all. We need to really um, sit down and sort of, you know, organize our day and say in the morning and the early afternoon, I'll do this. And then the afternoon later on, I'll do this. And Keep to as much of a schedule as we can. That's a, those are good places to start. Oh, that is such good advice because I think be, because we're so 
uh, unfamiliar with this territory that we tend to not think about how can we restore order, which gives a sense of peace and calm under any circumstance, but certainly under this circumstance as well. You know, I had been doing a lot of reading uh, recently before all of this happened about loneliness and that that was a we were nearly uh, epidemic proportions of loneliness. We have ways of connecting today that, for example, in 1918, they didn't during the Spanish flu. Is that helping us to navigate this uh, this territory because we cannot be physically present with one another? Is connecting in other ways a good substitute and are people uh, managing that in healthy ways or how can they manage it in healthy ways? Well, I think it's absolutely um, necessary during these times of loneliness. It's funny, a month ago we were screaming about our kids being on screens too much and now yeah. we need the screens. Um, but it really is important, and I think it's important for families in particular and um, women or men who are in a, and kids who, who have close friends to actually put on your calendar when you're going to talk to your family, when you're going to talk to your friends, because if you aren't intentional about making sure you connect with those people, sometimes you don't. But it really is important. And to tell you the truth, it's kind of fun because now I've got some kids scattered around the country, but we can all come together on a Zoom call and talk to each other in a way we really could never do before because we would visit one person and another. It doesn't replace physical touch, and it doesn't replace the intimacy that you experience with somebody when you're face-to-face, but boy, it sure helps relieve some of that loneliness that we all feel that can really take us down. You know, loneliness is a precursor to a lot of anxiety and depression, particularly in kids, so that is one area where we can shore things up and help some of that, um, you know, the angst that you get Mm -hmm. from loneliness start from uh, setting in. I know for a lot of families, they may um, have come to grips with the fact that we're not likely to be uh, impacted directly by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, we're, we're practicing social distancing and hygiene and all of that. But grandma, we can't connect with grandma. She might be in a facility and we can't visit her. Um, and there may be some anxiety about what's going to happen to grandma. We hear of who's the most vulnerable. There are people in the family, for example, um, who have underlying conditions. What advice do you give to, to uh, parents who are trying to allay their children's fears, uh, not so much for themselves, but for other family members uh, that they can't connect with and are in vulnerable populations? You know, it's very difficult because I have had a couple of situations where a grandparent, for instance, is dying in a, in a nursing home and family members and grandkids can't go in and say goodbye. Mm-hmm. One of the things I encourage parents and kids to do is write handwritten letters. You know, that that art is almost gone, but I think it's important because you can write a handwritten letter um, and and send it in and maybe send a photo and the staff can handle it in a in a careful way, where they can, uh, where, where a loved one in a shut-in situation can receive some love and some TLC from you. So I think uh, I think those can be very helpful things to both the person who can't get in the nursing home, and as well to the the person who's in the nursing home. You know, it's so interesting to me when you consider the greatest generation that's lived through world wars, who lived through the Depression. Um, For them, I think they might find it uh, less challenging to adjust than 
their great grandchildren. We've never been in a situation where we've been challenged in this way. Uh, it might be a, a a good practice for us to really consider what they have lived through, and that might help us bolster uh, ourselves up just a bit. Any other advice to help families navigate this new normal? Well, I think it's important to find a way to diffuse your stress. You know, we're all stressed, and rather than allow it to, you know, just grow and grow and grow, it's important for parents to sort of say, okay, what works best for me to relieve my stress? For some people, it's exercise, other people, it's listening to music, other people, it's doing artwork, whatever. And have in place um, a mechanism to get your stress out. Otherwise, it, it just bottles up in everybody and people just start fighting. Same is true with your kids. You know, say, you know, what is going to help my kid not bottle up their stress? They have to get outside. They have to move. Um, they have to get fresh air, and I know some places that isn't possible, but in most places it is. So I think that's one of the most important things that parents can do to help us get through this very difficult time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Dr. Meg, I thank you so much for talking with us and just helping us think through some of the challenges we face and offer some advice to alleviate that stress and um, the anxiety that comes along with this kind of uh, new situation. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Again, uh, Dr. Meg Meeker, she is a much sought after um, pediatrician and parenting expert with great advice on how to cope with the stress that comes along with this pandemic. I know we like to pretend that, well, we're not stressed out by it, but it, it takes a toll uh, when so many changes are being made in such a short period of time when we're witnessing the challenges our neighbors are facing and we're concerned about family members. So great advice to help us get through all of that. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Dr. Meeker was talking about how to relieve stress and anxiety. And one of the ways I would suggest we consider doing just that is by remembering things uh, that we are grateful for. Even in the throes of a global pandemic, it's possible to find that we're grateful for a number of things. In fact, you might even argue that we should be grateful for things that we have taken for granted. But, you know, these sorts of circumstances give us the opportunity to put things into perspective. Some of the things, and by no means is this an exhaustive list that I'm grateful for in view of how we are sharing this experience together. I'm grateful for the private enterprise in American business. There's none better anywhere. Um, we've got all kinds of uh, small businesses and corporations who are stepping up to help in this COVID-19 um, catastrophe, if you will, this pandemic. Uh, and they're doing what they can to employ people, to make sure that uh, what they're producing is helpful to those who are on the front lines. I'm grateful that we live in a system in which that is possible and we have uh, a system that can provide for its people in ways that other places could not even imagine. I'm grateful for factory employees, for truckers and warehouse workers and all those who are instrumental in keeping the supply chain intact. I'm grateful to go to the store even when I see shelves that are empty, that there's, there's so much on the shelves um, that you can um, take advantage of and purchase. I'm grateful for our our big box stores. I'm grateful for the authors and artists and musicians and actors and other entertainers who are using all forms of media to perform for us, our families and um, for children who are sheltered in place, uh, people who are reading books to children in all kinds of formats. I'm grateful for the teachers, administrators, and staff members, especially the information technology professionals who've made it possible for preschoolers and grade schoolers and high schoolers and even college students 
to transition from live instruction to online learning. Clumsy, I, I, I would admit, but still, it's uh, it's available. I'm glad for the incredible dedication of all our healthcare professionals, many of whom are working long hours, day after day, with little sleep, with few, far too few resources, and far too many terribly sick people. I am grateful for them. And in fact, all across the country, there is a particular time of day when people step outside of their doors or open their windows or onto their balconies and are literally applauding those who are working in the healthcare industry. I'm grateful for our form of government, a democratic republic, a constitutional republic, and for federalism, which allows the smaller governments of our states and territories to respond to the unique challenges they face, while the federal government coordinates national and international affairs. This is an excellent uh, example of federalism at work. I'm grateful for leaders who have the ability to make the necessary decisions in a crisis and to pivot quickly as the most up-to-date information arrives. It's far more challenging than I think we all appreciate. I'm grateful for the Constitution. It hovers like a silent blessing over all of us. It ensures that our liberties will remain when this disease has run its course and that the extraordinary measures that are now being taken will no longer be needed. I'm grateful for Western medicine, for scientists and information and knowledge and the technology that enables that information and knowledge to be more widely disseminated. I'm grateful for social media and the technological innovations that give us an opportunity to remain connected even though we are separated from one another. I'm grateful for the fact that those of us inclined to call upon God in prayer need to need not feel embarrassed for doing so. Uh, that we have access to the throne of grace and we have an invitation to come before him with our our needs and the needs of others. I'm grateful for charitable organizations that are working hard to meet the ongoing needs of people they serve, the poor, the homeless, those with disabilities and other unmet needs, for veterans and single parents, orphaned children, foster cared children. When we're all needy, we can better appreciate those for whom illness, unemployment, or isolation is not a temporary situation. Lord, help us to remember and have empathy and compassion for those uh, who suffer before and after an event like this. I'm grateful for the insurmountable kindness, the immeasurable kindness of people, um, too many uh, to count across America and indeed across the world who are doing whatever they can for anyone they can for as long as they can and as long as necessary. It's often said that an attitude of gratitude makes for a happier life, and even perhaps especially in difficult times. It's important to remember that and to be grateful for what we have. While the new coronavirus pandemic has resulted in lots of churches, most churches closing their doors in the name of social distancing, there's a new survey of more than 11,000 U.S. adults that shows that the disease has also inspired more than half of them to pray. The Pew Research Center surveyed 11,537 adults conducted in mid to late March, showing that some 55% of them say that they have prayed for and end to the uh, spread of the virus. Now, the nature of the prayers is probably less important than what prayer actually means. Prayer requires a certain humbling of oneself, an acknowledgement that I do not have control over events in my own life and events that are impacting others. And you humble yourself and acknowledge a God who does have the capacity to make a difference. So that's encouraging. Well, among Americans who reported uh, daily prayer, about 86% of them reported praying for an end to the virus. 73% of those who identify as Christians say that they've been praying during the pandemic. Even among those who seldom or never pray, 15% said that they've been praying for an end to the coronavirus, while 24% said uh, that they um, do not belong to any religion, uh, say that they are praying as well. Now, to whom and in what way? 
I think God can take um, any situation in which someone is crying out for help and reveal himself to them. The increased prayer comes even though, according to a survey, 59% of the respondents who previously attended church about once or twice a month so that they haven't attended church during the coronavirus outbreak, which, of course, is now no longer possible. It was also noted that while they no longer gather in the physical space, many people of faith have been engaging virtually. About four in ten regular worshipers appear to have replaced in-person attendance with virtual worship, saying that they have been attending less often but watching online instead, according to the study. Google also says searches for prayer has skyrocketed amid the coronavirus outbreak as well. The number of searches on Google for the word prayer have increased over the past few weeks as uh, coronavirus has garnered headlines. Um, Associate professor from the University of Copenhagen and executive director of the Association for the Study of Religion, Economics and Culture released a preliminary draft of a paper on Monday titled In Crisis, We Pray, Religiosity and the COVID-19 Pandemic, which is just a reminder that our neighbors may be more open to spiritual conversations than they were before. Meanwhile, we need to be reminded that while we can talk about prayer and Google prayer, it's not true for many others. A pastor in Nepal is facing up to six years in prison for Facebook comments on prayer and COVID-19. This Christian pastor could face time in prison. Morningstar News reports that the, the pastor, who's a 32-year-old, is taken into custody on Monday from his home after a video appeared on social media of him rebuking the coronavirus as he preached at his church and praying for deliverance. His wife told the news outlet that her husband received a phone call from a man requesting prayer for his sick wife at about 8 p.m. He did just that. Uh, the person wanted to come to our home for prayer, and my husband agreed, provided him the address, and asked him to come over so that they could pray. Could pray. He prayed for the neighbor, and the result has been that he is now facing, and I don't know if this was a setup or what the situation was, but he now faces the, the possibility of six years in prison. So we ought to appreciate and be grateful for the freedom we have not only to pray, but to talk about prayer, to post our prayers, to share our church services online and do all of the things that we take for granted. Let's pray for this pastor in Nepal. Well, we are out of time. I want to remind you that tomorrow we are going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. We'll share with you our interview of the week and uh, certainly headlines for the day. So thanks for joining us. I want to thank um, James Blind for engineering and producing, Clark Hilton for engineering as well from each remote location. Have a great evening, and we'll be back here tomorrow, so I hope you'll join us. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.